This is Books for Breakfast, a podcast where we talk about books and writing. I'm Enda Wiley. And I'm Peter Sir. And you're all very welcome to this morning's show. Today, Enda will be talking about Shirley Hazard's The Transit of Venus. And Poetry and Money, a Speculation. Peter will be talking about a book by poet and writer Peter Robinson, published by Liverpool University Press. And today's Toaster Challenge guest is poet Leanne Quinn, whose new collection, Some Lives, has just been published by Daedalus Press. So, the coffee's made. The toast is on. And the books are on the table. And uh, you have a novel on the breakfast table by a writer people may not know very well. A writer who had a very interesting life in her younger years before she even became a writer. Yes, that's right. Um, the writer that I want to talk about today is the novelist Shirley Hazard. And in many ways, I think Shirley Hazard's experiences as a young person came to shape her later as a writer. Her intelligence, her international spirit, so evident in her books. I, I often think they must have spawned um, you know, the, the, these must have all come from her early experiences, her early years of travel. Can you tell us a little bit about her? Yeah, of course. Um, Shirley Hazard was born in Sydney in Australia in 1931 and she travelled the world in her early years with her parents who were diplomats. And her childhood in Australia was filled with reading. She said of poems that she ate and drank them up as nourishment. But also there was a lot of, I think, family discord. There was alcoholism. There was mental illness on her mother's side. There was infidelity on her father's. And ultimately the that marriage did disintegrate. But at 16, living in Hong Kong, she was engaged by British intelligence. And between 1947 and 1948, she was involved in monitoring the civil war in China. Now, we have a nearly 16-year-old daughter. Can you imagine if she was engaged in such activity? I don't know. I think Freya would make it a pretty good spy. It would be interesting, wouldn't it? Um, but anyway, after this, Shirley Hazard lived in New Zealand and in Europe and the United States. And she worked there for the United Nations Secretariat in New York. And she divided her time between Italy. And in 1963, she married the writer Francis Stiegmuller. And she met him. He was a Flaubert scholar. He was a writer and translator. But she met him at a party given by Muriel Spark, which sounds um, very, very exciting, I think. And they married later that year. He died in 1994 and she kind of of, as I said, moved between Italy and New York and she herself died in 2016. But literary success came to her pretty easily, didn't it? Yeah, and without, I have to say, the usual onslaught of rejection slips, which so often many writers um, experience, her long association with The New Yorker began with the first story she submitted, Wilhara Road, which had been pulled from the slush pile by the editor of the time, William Maxwell, and published in 1961. And as many of you know, William Maxwell was such an important editor and got so many writers published. But speaking of Italy, she loved Italy and she wrote a book, Graham Greene in Capri, a memoir of Graham Greene. Um, Italy was such a magic place for her. She said the mysteries remain important, the accidental quality of existence, the poetry of memory, the impassioned life that is animated by awareness of eventual death. Um, but she wrote five books of fiction. She wrote um, books such as The Evening of the Holiday, which is kind of Henry Jamesian about an affair between an older Italian man and a young half English visitor. She wrote another book called The Bay of Moon. And at this stage, this was published in 1970. You could see her writing was becoming more expensive of slightly Henry James influence still there. And then there were two collections of stories. There was a brilliant novel, The Great Fire, which won the National Book Award for Fiction in 2003 and the Miles Franklin Award in 2004. And it was shortlisted for the Orange Prize in 2004 and the Booker for that year too. Uh, I suppose all these books are fantastic achievements, but the novel you want to talk about today is one which you feel is a bit different from, from those, isn't that right? 
Yeah, I think the novel I want to talk about is her novel, The Transit of Venus, which was first published 41 years ago in 1980 and 23 years before her previous novel. And I think actually great readers of Shirley Hazard often um, were very put out about the fact that it took her so long to write another novel after it. But it still stands out, I think, as one of the finest novels of the 20th century. I mean, where did it come from? I first, When I read it, I first thought I'd never read anything quite like it. And it's been fascinating for me as well to read um, of other writers' responses to the book. And they've often remarked on um, saying, they've often remarked in the book saying that you really only kind of get the greatness of the book when you go back and you you read it again. Um, some have even written of their early resistance to the book. They didn't really like it. They had to return to it later and then they were shocked by its brilliance. So even Hazard's husband, Francis Stiegmuller, remarked that nobody should ever have to read this book for the first time, which is kind of interesting, isn't it? And in one sense, The Transit of Venus is a love story. A young astronomer comes to study with an older eminent one in England in the 1950s and he meets and falls in love with the astronomer Australian ward, a girl named Caroline Bell. And the next 30 years of his life will be dedicated to his possibly seemingly fruitless pursuit of her. Interesting plot so far, but what actually makes the book so good? I know it is an interesting plot. It sounds in a way like it could be an effective but minor novel, doesn't it, Peter? But of course, it's far from that. Hazard's triumph is that she politicises the plot by sending Caroline or Caro, as she calls her, to work in a government office by making young Ted Tice's argument over the placement of a telescope a matter of revolutionary conviction. And Hazard has greater things, if there are greater things, on her mind than love, I think, in this novel, which makes it really interesting. And lots of travel too, isn't that right? Yeah, travel. And of course, that goes back, as I said, to her early years when she travelled so much as a young person. The novel moves from rural England to Australia, to London, to South America, to Stockholm, to New York. And its people, of course, move too. Uh, there's a brilliant description of LA written in a letter by a playwright named Paul Ivory in the book. He writes a letter from a hotel and he says, so far, California offers the greatest contrast imaginable between the works of God and the desecrations of man. California is a beautiful woman with a foul tongue. And does she have much to tell us about the politics of, of that time? Yeah, well, the, the various forms of unrest that kind of ripple through the 60s and 70s are very present throughout the book as well. So, for instance, there's a quote that says, in America, a white man had been shot dead in a car and a black man on a veranda. In Russia, a novelist had emerged from hell to announce that beauty would save the world. Russian tanks rolled through Prague while America made war in Asia. In Greece, the plays of Aristophanes were forbidden. In China, the writings of Confucius. On the old world, history lay like a paralysis. In France, the generals died. In in Italy, a population abandoned the fields forever to make cars or cardigans in factories. And economists called this a miracle. What else do you like about it? Well, I suppose there are no spoilers in this novel. We learn on page 12 that the protagonist will eventually commit suicide but we don't really know why until the end and I like that. I love that structure. Also, I love that she conveys complex dramas with kind of an austere economy of words and they're slim books but they've winding sentences which I like. She said herself that speech in literature as in life can crucially suggest what is not said So I think her intelligence goes full tilt in this novel, The Transit of Venus. And I think her simple descriptive powers are highly memorable. Each sentence 
sometimes I, I actually feel is kind of like a mini masterpiece when you're reading when you're reading them. So, for instance, would you like to hear the opening just to convince you, Peter, of her yeah. wonders? Yeah, sure. I would. First line says, by nightfall, the headlines would be reporting devastation. It was simply that the sky on a shadeless day suddenly lowered itself like an awning. Purple silence petrified the limbs of trees and stood crops upright in the fields like hair on end. Whatever there was of fresh white paint sprang out from downs or dunes or lacerated a roadside with a streak of fencing. This occurred shortly after midday on a summer Monday in the south of England. What an amazing opening paragraph. But really, though, the book's achievement goes beyond style and even beyond structure. The characters, I think, kind of exist within and at the mercy of a possible wider cosmos. Um, There's a, a wonderful kind of mystery to this book. And actually, I was struck by the New York Times reviewer, Anatole Broyard. He said it was a dose of the sublime. There were sentences that brought tears of gratification to my eyes, he said. And John Banville himself, he's another great fan of this book. He said it's intricately plotted and gorgeously written. But he said a peculiar and powerful sense of evil hangs over the narrative so that even as one is impelled towards the conclusion, one at the same time is fearful of getting there. And I think that's that's really astute reading of, of her book. She can be a difficult read and she sets up a sense of certainty, but then she destroys it. She kind of capsizes the reader over and over again, which I think is what makes it a great novel to return to again and again, which is in a way where we started talking about this book. It's a book which which I think really benefits from reading it again. And it opens with a shipwreck. But I, I don't want to say, it's speaking of, you know, a book kind of capsizing you, but I don't want to say anything more other than I would urge readers to read this fantastic novel by Shirley Hazard. Well, that's some recommendation. So I certainly will be looking forward to having a look at this novel that was ended talking about The Transit of Venus by Shirley Hazard. And it's published by Penguin Random House. And details, as usual, will be on the website booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com Peter, what have you got on the table this week? Yeah, I've got an interesting book called Poetry and Money, a Speculation by Peter Robinson, published by the Liverpool University Press. Peter Robinson, that's interesting, actually, um, you've got his book here, because do you remember we went and saw him reading in the wonderful Books Upstairs, um, just I think it was, you know, in the times before lockdown, and it was great to hear him. He's a really fine poet. He's published loads of books. He's also Professor of English and American Literature at the University of Reading. He's the editor of Two Rivers Press, and he's won lots of prizes for his work. So I'm really interested to hear about this book, because poetry money, it's not something that we normally normally associate together. So it's, it seems a, bit, a little bit unlikely in a way, doesn't it, Peter? Yeah, well, exactly. And I suppose what this book is, is a study of, uh, if you like, the relationships between poets, poetry and money. And he kind of goes from Chaucer to contemporary times. 
Um, so there's lots in it of, of interest. I mean, it's, it's not just, I suppose, money, but what money represents, you know, like a s- system of value or trust. So he's kind of investigating where poetry fits into that. And, you know, he gives plenty of examples of poetic hardship over the centuries. There's poetry using economics as metaphor. There's ideas of debt and interest and repayment coming into, you know, for instance, religious poetry. So if you think about it, I mean, money is so huge in everyone's life. It would be amazing if it didn't also spill into the life of poetry, poets and poetry. But I, I can't think of any other book that looks at this subject um, or, or something that covers it so exhaustively. Yeah, it, sound, it sounds very interesting. And listen, Peter, where does it, where does he begin? Well, I mean, he goes back to Chaucer, but really the book begins in a creative writing class that isn't going particularly well. And when Peter Robinson asks, he's, he's, he's got a story by somebody in the class, he says, is this any good? And he gets the answer, well, I wouldn't pay money to read it. Mm-hmm. To which someone else in the class responds, well, in fact, you're paying £9,000 a year to read it. And immediately you're into this kind of realisation that knowledge is part of the money economy, that it has an identifiable monetary value, that, uh, you know, in the UK context, it's a £9,000 loan and the six percent interest that's charged on that debt post-graduation, you know? Yeah, it's very interesting. And and where is poetry in that calculation? Yeah, well, indeed. I mean, where where is poetry in a capitalist economy? Um, nowhere, really, I suppose. It's, it's, it's without economic value. I mean, it doesn't even pretend to replicate the, the norm of, of work uh, as prose does. I mean, he quotes an article by Charles Simic on this point, and as usual, Simic makes his points pithily. Everyone has heard of poems being read at marriage ceremonies and funerals, but I expect nobody has ever tried to inflict a chapter of a novel or short story on that kind of gathering. No wonder writers and intellectuals by and large disdain poetry. Poets work for nothing, Tim Parks says. In other words, they turn poems out the way a sweatshop in a third world country turns out cheap toys. And more infuriatingly, most poems are short. They give the impression they took no time to write them. Ten minutes tops. To write a 600-page novel takes years. You go and work at your desk every day the way a miner goes to his mine and you feel drained afterwards. Of course, that kind of work should be amply rewarded. A poet stands by the window watching the rain fall or looks at a lock of hair of his old sweetheart or scribbles down something on a piece of paper and that's through for the day. The most outrageous thing about poetry is that poems composed in such a lackadaisical manner end up in anthologies your kids are supposed to study in school. Not only that, but... They may fall in love with them, memorise them and try to imitate them. So that was all Charles um, Simic. I mean, so poetry is, you know, it's this kind of slightly outrageous, disreputable thing which perversely may acquire a lasting cultural value. But you can't monetize it. It's not a career choice. No parent is going to probably welcome their, their child coming into them and saying, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be a poet. And it didn't work. Um, it didn't particularly work in a communist economy either. I mean, he quotes, for instance, the famous trial of, of Joseph Brodsky when he's asked by the judge, who has recognised you as a poet? Who has enrolled you in the rank of poets? Yeah, and I suppose that's always the big question, isn't it? It is, and there's only one answer, and the answer is no one. To be a poet is a condition, not a profession, uh, Robert Graves said, and it was interesting because I heard Moya Cannon quoting that at her launch, the launch of her collector poems on, on Zoom recently. So the book He's looking in at, at these questions of value and worth and money. You know, I mean, just because poetry doesn't have a monetary value as such doesn't, of course, mean that poets aren't interested in or obsessed even by, by money. Whether they sign up to the regular economy like the, you know, bank clerk Elliot or insurance man Wallace Stevens or Dr. Williams or hustle for their living on campuses. 
Yeah. And then also, you know, I'm thinking just listening to you there, I'm thinking of Robert Graves when he said there's no money in poetry, but then there's no poetry in money either. Yeah. And that's kind of interesting that like Peter Robinson would argue that the second part of that isn't actually true. His book is effectively saying that there is poetry in money. And in fact, he quotes the very same Graves who wrote a poem lamenting the loss of the old uh, money, the old coins, pounds, shillings and pence. And he kind of moves on to consider lots of poems about money. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the poet has supplicant looking for pat- patronage. This is where he comes back to Chaucer writing to his purse, his poem to his purse, or Wordsworth being grateful for a financial gift, or a bedridden Ben Johnson in 1631 writing for support with, with, with great dignity. You know, trying to, trying to persuade a patron to part with some money to help him in his, uh, sickness and age. Yeah. And there are plenty of poems about deprivation or poets encountering countering desperation, aren't there? Um, think about Elizabeth Bishop. Writing about, yeah, about a beggar in, in Rio. He quotes um, also poems about what he calls unglamorous solidarity, which is, you know, when the poet writes from within the experience, you know, because lots of poets have been poor. You know, he talks about, for instance, Gwendolyn Brooks, in Bronzeville from the collection of that name, describing an apartment building in a poor Chicago neighbourhood. Actually, you know what, Peter, just listening to you there, I think it might be worthwhile hearing that that poem by Gwendolyn Brooks in full. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Then you can hear her actually reading it on the Poetry Foundation site. And just to say a kitchenette in America, for those of you who don't know, means a small apartment which is often cut out of a larger one. So I'm going to read this for you now. Kitchenette Building by Gwendolyn Brooks. We are things of dry hours and the involuntary plan, greyed in and grey. Dream makes a giddy sound, not strong like rent, feeding a wife, satisfying a man. But could a dream send up through onion fumes its white and violet, fight with fried potatoes and yesterday's garbage ripening in the hall, flutter or sing an aria down these rooms, even if we are willing to let it in, had time to warm it, keep it very clean, anticipate a message, let it begin? We wonder... But not well, not for a minute. Since number five is out of the bathroom now, we think of lukewarm water, hope to get in it. It's great to hear that. I think I should probably have been reading it in an American accent. (laughs) Well, as I say, because there is a great great recording of her um, reading it. It's a great book. It's a great book. And I love that thing of number five is out of the bathroom now, you know, it's really good. And you're dreaming of lukewarm water. Yeah, it's excellent. Great voice going on in that poem. And, and you had a poem as well, Peter, from the book, didn't you, by Kathleen Rain, that Peter Robinson actually discusses. And, discusses, and I really like that. Yeah, I mean, since we're, since we're in kind of poem reading um, mood, I mean, it's, it's actually from a discussion later in the book about contracts and profits. and But it kind of fits in well here because it's the ultimate sort of money worry poem. And that's in fact what it's called worry and money. Wearing worry about money like a hair shirt, I lie down in my bed and wrestle with my angel. My bank manager could not sanction my continuance for another day, but life itself wakes me each morning and love urges me to give, although I have no money in the bank at this moment and all property to cease to exist in a world where poverty is a shameful and ridiculous offence. Having no one to advise me, I open the Bible and shut my eyes and put my finger on a text and read that the widow with a young son must give first to the prophetic genius from the little there is in the bin of flour and the cruise of oil. It's amazingly honest, isn't it, that poem? 
It's amazing the way she's so clear about her poverty and what does she do? She opens the Bible. It's brilliant, isn't it? So I think poetry is, is amazing like that. So that was that was Peter reading Worry and Money, a brilliant poem by Kathleen Rain. And I'm glad, yeah, because I'm glad Peter Robinson resurrected that poem as well because it, it doesn't make it to, to Rain's uh, collected poems. It's, it's almost as if to something too kind of shameful about it. And indeed, I suppose poets have been always, um, or always have been ambivalent about, you know, their position in that kind of, if you like, bank manager's view of the world. Robinson also quotes Saul Bella's Humboldt in, in Humboldt's Gift. And that's supposed to be based on Delmore Schwartz, the poet. Yeah, that's right. Actually, I'll read that bit, actually, where where he's explaining his obsession. And he says, the reason is that we're Americans, after all. What kind of American would I be if I were innocent about money, I ask you? Things have to be combined as Wallace Stevens combined them. Who says money is the root of evils? Isn't it the partner? Well, the partner is the most evil man in Chaucer. No, I go along with Horace Walpole. Walpole said it was natural for free men to think about money. Why? Because money is freedom. That's why. Yeah, and yeah, it's great. It's great to hear that. And, and I, I, I actually want to go back to to Ben Johnson because you know the famous poem oh, about his dead son. That yeah, one, about, yeah, about, about his dad. I mean, it's one of the most striking and heartbreaking poems in the language. And I didn't realize, but there's an extraordinary account of of a dream that Johnson had before his son died in in the plague. And his son comes to him in a dream with a bloody cross gashed on his forehead in the form of a young man rather than a boy. Mm-hmm. You know, the shape Johnson figures that he would have had at the resurrection. Mm-hmm. But the poem's itself, the poem's extraordinary for, it's, it's built on this whole notion of debt that, you know, this idea that his son was lent to him by God for seven years and that now, in a sense, he has to, he has to repay that debt. Yeah. Farewell, thy child of my right hand and joy. My sin was too much hope of thee, loved boy. Seven years thou wert lent me, and I thee pay, exacted by thy fate on the just day. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 such a strange idea. And like the metaphor, you know, as Robinson reminds us, that, that Johnson on the, on the day of his son's death is obliged to repay the debt that is birth and life incurred. I mean, that whole chapter is about indebtedness and redemption. And he looks at George Herbert, who uses lots of financial imagery in religious poems, or, or Don's valediction of weeping, let me pour forth my tears before thy face, whilst I stay here for thy face, coins them and thy stamp they bear, and by this mintage they are something worth. I mean, there's lots of other stuff here. I mean, there's, there's a whole section on the South Sea bubble in poetry, there's Tennyson and money, and of course, You'd have to have Ezra Pound, without whom no discussion of poetry and money would be complete. And pretty much everything he had to say on the subject was obnoxious and anti-Semite and, 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 and so on. So, Peter, Poetry and Money, a speculation by Peter Robinson. Does he come to an essential conclusion or is there any conclusion in the book? Well, I mean, the book, I suppose, basically it's, it's grappling with the notion that both poetry and money are, as he says, ways of attributing value to the world, but that the kinds of attribution and value are inevitably different and themselves differently valued. I mean, I, I just think that they run on two different tracks that maybe sometimes collide. It's like he, you know, he quotes the hard-nosed poem by Frost, um, you know, provide, provide, which is your poets, if you like, go to investment plan, make the whole stock exchange your own, if need be, occupy a throne where nobody can call you crone. Some have relied on what they knew, others on being simply true, 
What worked for them might work for you. No memory of having starred atones for later disregard or keeps the end from being hard. Better to go down dignified with boughten friendship at your side than none at all. Provide, provide. And I don't know if that's American, the kind of American work ethic meeting poetry, a sort of Puritan legacy that sanctifies independence and self-reliance, or if it's Frost being ironic about the place of creativity in a society which marginalizes it. So I'm not sure, but maybe it's kind of symptomatic of the queasy relationship between the two economies that are kind of fundamentally at loggerheads. I, I mean, I think, you know, in, there aren't, there isn't much really in this book about poetry outside of English, um, or by, and it's, in a way, it's kind of, it's quite male-centered as well, but, um, I, I think of the question posed by all those years, all those centuries ago by Mahun O'Hifernon as he traipsed around Munster in the 16th century, you know, Kesht Kia Achyanochdon, you know, um, who, who, who will buy a poem? Trying to find somebody who would buy a poem. But essentially, I mean, you know, I suppose what he's saying is if poetry is to go on existing and, and it's not unimaginable that it won't be there. And that's one of the things that, is worth thinking about as well. I mean, we kind of assume, you know, that poetry, I would assume that it would always be there, but that's maybe a stupid assumption. But anyway, he's saying that if it is to be there, um, that it kind of has to adapt to whatever the prevailing kind of um, economic conditions are. It has to deal, whether it's out in the margins, it has to deal with the society that it finds itself in. Which I think is something that poetry has always done, really, in a way. Yeah, it it? has. It has. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's a very interesting conclusion. I have to say, I very much enjoy wandering into the reading world of Peter Sir. That was really interesting. Thanks, Peter, for that. So that was Peter talking about Peter Robinson's book, Poetry and Money, A Speculation. It's published by Liverpool University Press. And details, as you will be on our website. Thanks for listening. The trams still run on time, people still lie in the sun, on our backs in a room, a stack of books is a home. We can still walk in and out of galleries, look at the sky and think it is a paint shade of blue we have waited to see in the city where the trams still run and we greet each other with smiles and greet each other with smiles while the trams still run. Our hands are not too tight in each other's. And what precedence has this day over any other? We have lived in the cold where the cold kept us pacing and our lips moving and your lips moving. Your hand at your ear where your blood echoes the blue could be winter blue where the ice grows grinding, the town, the river beneath, still seething where nothing appears to move. It is moving as we are moving in the coarse light of the tram, in the coarse moving lights of the tram.
And that was Leanne Quinn reading precedence from her new and second collection, Some Lives, published in 2020 by Daedalus Press. It's a poem I really like for its movement, its paired back beauty, its mesmeric repetition, all qualities, I think, which are very dominant in this new collection of yours, Leanne. And many thanks for reading it. And you're very welcome today to Books for Breakfast. Um, but just a few words about Leanne. She was born in Drogheda. She grew up in Monaster Boyce, County Louth. Her debut collection, Before You, was published by Daedalus Press in 2012, and it was highly commended in the Forward Prize for Poetry 2013. Her poems have been widely anthologised, appearing in the Forward Book of Poetry 2013, and Windharp, Poems of Ireland since 1916, among others. She also holds a PhD in American Literature from Trinity College, and her second collection, the one we'll talk about today, Some Lives, as I said, was just published. It's just published by Daedalus Press. She's lived in Dublin for many years and currently lives in Munich, Germany. So it's great to have Leanne here. So to start off, Leanne, in a recent article in the Honest Ulsterman, you said moving to Munich shook you up a bit. It set you off in a different kind of tone and timbre, you said in your poetry. And you began reading the Russian poets. And it's no wonder, really, I suppose, that Some Lives opens with Anna Akhmatova's poem, Without a Hero. Don't dictate to me, I can hear it myself. A warm shower presses on the roof. I hear the ivy whispering. It just, it's, they're beautiful lines. And of course, it's not only Akhmatova, it's also... It's Svetayeva, Osip Mandelstam and the German experimental poet, um, you, you spend a lot of time concentrating on his poem Valtanda. So I was just wondering, could you talk to us a little bit about these great Russian writers and indeed Van Hodes and why they've inspired you so much and impressed you so much? Uh, well, I always like to read poetry in translation. And when I moved to Munich, we had we, we bought our, our books with us. And our apartment was 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 very small, so we we kind of put a book ban on, and we we're like, okay, we we definitely can't buy any more books. So I started to just again reread from what I had in in my my book collection, and one of the books I picked up again was Najesta Mandelstam's Hope Against Hope and and Hope Abandoned. And I'd read this book in my twenties and was really affected mm-hmm. by it, but I just started to read it again and then move again towards the Russian poets, and yeah, I just. I just kind of fascinated by them, obviously by their uh, their poetry and their lives. There, there's a sensibility there that I'm just really drawn to, just really attracted to. I don't know if I can put my finger on it exactly, but there's a directness there, and then you know they're they're vastly different to each other, and and that's really appealing as well. They're they're so unique, so inventive. Yeah, and I'm just really really drawn to them, and I suppose the move to Munich as well, mm-hmm. like sparked my interest in, in German poetry. And my wife, Georgina, came home with an anthology of German poetry one day. And I, I found the, the Jakob van Hodes poem, Ende. And I didn't know this poem. I think mm-hmm. it, it is widely known from, from what I read and has been anthologized many times, but it certainly wasn't known to me. So yeah, I, I was just really struck with it. And I remember reading it mm-hmm. out to Georgina and saying, look at this. I mean, this could be about the present moment, about the present time and, and the current like environmental crisis. And I was just really, really mm-hmm. taken with it. And uh, yeah. 
Yeah, it's fantastic that going to a new place kind of shakes up all these ideas and gets you going in another direction. Yeah, I, th- I think it's really good. And you can feel that energy in the book as well. And I'd mentioned at the start of our chat, the kind of mesmeric repetition of the poem, Precedence, that you read for us. And in your collection, I like the way you play with form, this kind of a dream like returning to lines used over and over again. I'm thinking of the highly energised poem, Elegy, a poem with no punctuation that feels to me kind of like a breathless stream of consciousness fueled by repetition and grief. You say nobody died, nobody mourned. We love a kill, we love a kill, we love a kill and we love nothing more than to mourn. But nobody died, nobody mourned. Really, really great lines there, Leanne. Can can you speak about the importance of repetition in the form of the book and the turning back of poems on themselves? They kind of reveal new meanings to the reader, I think. Yeah, I mean, I'm really interested in repetition. I'm really interested in sound. I'm really interested in rhythm. And I suppose repetition kind of plays into all of that. And I think as well, in terms of of the themes of the poems and the themes that are in the collection, I was thinking about the past and I think thinking about the present and I was thinking about like repeating cycles. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I suppose I just started to kind of like literalize that through the, my use of, of form and just kind of experimenting with, with repetition. And, and when you repeat something, do, do you actually repeat it or is it changed or, or altered? And yeah, I'm very kind of drawn to that and, and just interested mm-hmm. in it. So I suppose that's why it does feature, you know, quite a lot uh, in the collection. Yeah. And also there is, as I said, this kind of paired back beauty, I think, which succeeds in bringing details memorably to the fore. And I'm thinking of the the poem, The Distant Past, where a man is threatening to toss a mouse live into a pan or rings, which includes the train journey and ends. Look how far I've traveled to see you. How sand falls like gold from my sleeves. That detail just seems to come out because it is so pared back. And Leanne, is this a kind of pared back style? Is it a hard one or is it something that just kind of naturally comes to you as a poet? I think it really just naturally comes to me. I don't know whether it's tied to my personality or what, but I'm quite a a reticent person and it it seems to kind of suit me. And it's just, it's really the only way I, I seem to be able to write, I, I I always end up, you know, you know, pairing things back even more. I think it's just the particular style I have and just just the way poems come to me and, and this kind of this, this stripped back nature of language that I'm kind of drawn to. And, and maybe that was something with, with the, you know, the work in translation as well, because I often find that it's, it's more economical with language. And I'm kind of really drawn to that as well, a, a more kind of direct I suppose in some ways sensibility so yeah I think it's 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 just as well just natural to me I think. (laughs) Yeah well that's the best approach I think and of course it's not just the Russian poets who inspire you Leanne Um, your poem The Fear Bulg it takes its title from a painting by Nana Reid and the poem uh, The Good Going Up to Heaven and The Wicked Coming Down is a title also taken from a painting by her. She grew up didn't she in Monster Boyce your hometown and I know she's important to you could you just say a few words about that? Yeah absolutely well she grew up in in Drogheda actually in the town of Drogheda where I'm originally from as well so we moved out to Monaster Boyce when when I was in my teens but yeah she's a huge inspiration to me I love her painting I just absolutely love her paintings I'm I'm so drawn to them I think she's just an exceptional artist and then I'm also drawn to the life and what it was like for her to to grow up in in Drogheda and you know she lived through so many important events 
of, of the 20th mm-hmm. century. So I'm kind of intrigued by that, what it was like to be an artist in, in her time, in her day. Obviously, we know with, with the founding of like the new state and, and how difficult that was for, for mm-hmm. women and the kind of role they were cast in. So what it was like to be like a female artist, I guess she was seen as a bit of an oddity and a bit of an eccentricity within the town, but she was really just a very like modern woman who who had lived in London, who had spent time in Paris and, and a lot of time in Dublin as well. So yeah, I'm just really in, intrigued by her and how she negotiated that. Yeah, it's great that your your poems have brought her again to the fore. And I can't have you here without asking you about Munich. Peter and I are both very jealous we're not there. <laughs> uh, but it's it's a city that enters these poems with its weather, its people, its sounds, its sense of place. In your poem, The Fall, um, the narrator says, in the bakery, I point crumbs of a language, four words for goodbye will do. And I, I suppose there are many ways to say goodbye in German, aren't there? And you'll have to excuse my German now, but I'm thinking of bis später or bis dann or bis bald. Um, I got lessons there from my daughter who <laughs> studies German, but it, it did make me wonder though, I mean, you were talking there about translation, but living in Munich as you do, does living where you are and constantly hearing another language affect your own writing and has it changed your own writing as a result? Yeah, maybe. I suppose it does make you think more more about your your, your own language and obviously when I came here, I didn't, I didn't speak German. I had some school German and I'm still learning. It's definitely still an ongoing process that has been mm-hmm. like bad, badly interrupted mm-hmm. by the pandemic because <laughs> I talk to so few people, <laughs> especially in, in German at, at the moment. So yeah. yeah, I think anytime you kind of, um, you learn a new language, it, it makes you kind of reflect, reflect on your own as well. So yeah, I, I I'm sure it has had had, mm. a, had an impact. Yeah, it's exciting, I think, for you, Leandri, over there. And I'm looking forward to seeing what new stuff is going to come from your time in Munich as well. So um, speaking as we were about Nana Reed, it would be lovely to hear your poem, Cave of the Fear Bullock, Leanne. If you would read it for us, that would be great. Cave of the Fear Bullock. Not even a trespass of sky to compromise the dark, for blood beats in the body of the heart. Nobody thinks, why do we do this? The nervous system ferries its thin shards of glass down among the clay where the blunt flint of the soul remains. Pollen embedded in the riverbed, a prehistory of refuse in the lower layers. Every end is a chance to start over, but the river cannot start again, or the voice in the cave speak in a righteous tongue. The body too gives way as the blood deposits its memory. In the tributaries of the cave, the sky pushed out, the heart yet to know it can go without. And that was Leanne Quinn reading Cave of the Fear Bulk from Some Lives, published by Daedalus Press. And now, Leanne, it was great chatting to you. I think it's time to move on to the Toaster Challenge, where we will not interrupt you. And we're looking forward to hearing you talk about a book which you really love for about three minutes. So Peter's getting the bread ready. The toaster will go down. So one Two, three, off you go. The book I've chosen is Secondhand Time by Svetlana Alexievich, translated by Bela Shevich. Svetlana Alexievich is a Belarusian writer. She was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature in 2015. Alexievich's books are essentially oral histories. She has described herself as, a, as an historian of feeling or a historian of the untraceable. Secondhand Time explores the collapse of the Soviet Union and the effect of that collapse on ordinary men and women of former Soviet states. 
The book is an astonishing collection of voices. Alexievich is an extraordinary writer. What seems to go hand in hand with that is her ability to listen, to elicit narrative from others, to absent herself from the narrative so that others can assume that narrative role. This stepping aside is what I find truly remarkable about her writing. She's a curator of voices. In this book, she listens to narratives of pain and loss, narratives of love, of hope, of guilt, and narratives of disillusionment. She says that she's always listening for that moment when everyday life is transformed into literature. For her, this happens when a person delves deep into themselves, and these moments of delving is what she's there to record. The voices in this book really left such a deep impression on me. The experiences that they describe are often harrowing, upsetting, and disturbing. As I was reading the book, I also realised that I was actually reading a compendium of suicides, and this is really one of the structuring principles of the book. These stories are often told to us by a surviving family member or by a friend, and they're particularly difficult to read. But through these narratives, the book really gets to the kernel of the trauma experienced by people when there's a seismic ideological shift away from the principles of the past into the present order. And it's that trauma that Alexievich is recording in this book, who was able to adapt and who wasn't. She juxtaposes all of these differing points of view, these different experiences of the past and of the present moment. And the result is this tremendous polyphonic account of Soviet Russia as experienced on the level of the individual. In secondhand time, people try to understand or to come to terms with or defend, as the case may be not only the inhumane acts of the communist regime, but also the horrific conflicts that emerged after the breakup of the Soviet Union. I think the book is just an astonishing achievement, and this is really true of all her books. The stories in here really don't let you go after you've read them. And while it's certainly a tough read because of the nature of those stories, I feel that it's a necessary read, and I really can't recommend it enough. Thanks, yeah. I mean, I think I, I, I very struck. I mean, it's it's, a, it's an amazing book for anybody who hasn't read it. And one of the things I'm grateful for is the chance that you gave me to actually go out and, and explore it. And because she is such an extraordinary writer, and this is such an amazing book. I mean, it's 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 full of those the things that that, that you say. I mean, the the kind of voices of pain and and you know, kind of despair, disillusionment, but also that kind of. I mean, that kind of thing that. Everything they had, that they had believed in for so long just kind of vanished un, under, under their feet. I mean, I, I'm just looking at some of the things I pulled out from it. Like, no one had taught us how to be free. We'd only been ever we'd only ever been taught how to die for for freedom, and then freedom turned out to mean the rehabilitation of bourgeois existence, which has traditionally been suppressed in in Russia. Completely new people appeared. All these young guys in gold rings and magenta blazers. There were new rules. If you have money, you can't. No money. You're nothing. Who cares if you've read all of Hegel? Uh, humanity started sounding like a disease. All you people are capable of carrying around, you know, a volume of Mandelstam. You're no use. You're no use to us an, anymore. But that that sense of of despair of at the kind of empty acquisitiveness that has replaced communism is a kind of constant refrain, isn't it, throughout the book that people just don't know what, or people of a particular generation are at a, are at a total loss. Yeah, absolutely. Like, when a belief system is is there, or you know, even if it's one that is imposed, when when it's taken away, people really are at a loss, and, and people really struggle. And it also almost became like a competition in one way to see who could adapt and 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 who couldn't. And yeah, it's it's it's. I think she just, you know, she she really captures 
the complexity of it because it is so complex, especially as, you know, an Irish person coming to this. But I, I, I think she, you know, she she gives voice to so many people. And the remarkable thing that she does is like she gives it without judgment, which is really, really hard to do. But I think she achieves it so well. It's a funny thing because because it's it's you know you said you admired her ability to kind of stand aside and it is it is unusual because I can't you know it's hard to think it's, it kind of reminds me of a little bit of somebody like Studs Terkel the American writer who wrote you know books about the Great Depression Second World War but you know just kind of listening to people uh, uh, as well but it's not a tradition that's big in English but but the kind of thing of simply you know, you're reading a long book and, and it's entirely dominated by by the voices of people. So the writer's task is to kind of, in this case, to remove herself. So there's no intervention from her re- really. So it's the writer as listener. That's 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 kind of the amazing thing. And she has, because, you know, she's obviously, she did a book about Chernobyl. She's Belarusian, as you said, and that hasn't made her very popular um, there either. She's She wrote about Afghanistan. She wrote about the, you know, what happened to women in the Second World War. All of the all of these things, which made her slightly pretty unpopular in various places in 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 Russia, people ha- are divided in their reaction to what she said. In in Belarus, it's very it's very difficult for her. So so her listening has got her into trouble, hasn't it? A lot. Absolutely, it has. And I, I think currently, I think she left Belarus in September of of twenty twenty, and I think she she is in Germany now. Yeah. Actually, so she actually said she she feared for her safety. So so she left, but. Yeah, it certain, certainly has. It's not the the easy path. And what, what I really draw to her writing is, like the best writing is, is writing, I think, that gets beyond itself. And I mean, this is such a prime example that of writing that goes beyond the self and that ability just to abstract yourself like that, I think is what's really, really remarkable about the books and, and why I'm drawn to them. And like you mentioned her yes. other books there, she writes brilliantly on war as well. Yeah, Boys in, in Sync and uh, The Unwomanly Face of War. Again, like remarkable books. I could have recommended either of those books as well, but this is the most recent book of hers that that, that I've read. Yeah, well, certainly. I mean, and, and that's great. I mean, because you've, you've made a great case for for that book and for Svetlana Alexievich in, in, in general. So it was, so it'd be great. It's a great recommendation, I think, to take away from 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 this. So just to, to conclude, that was, that was Leanne Quinn talking, first of all, to end about her own new book, Some Lives published by Daedalus Press. And she was also talk, talking about a book she loves, Secondhand Time by Svetlana Alexievich, which is published by Fitzcarraldo, who published so many great books. And the details of, of both books will be available on our booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. So thanks again for that, Leanne. Thanks so much for having me on. We, I think we've reached the end of our Books for Breakfast podcast this morning. I'm definitely rushing off to have more coffee. And I'm Enda Wiley and I have Peter Sarah here with me. And Peter, would you like to tell everyone about the details of the podcast if they'd like to listen again? Well, you can subscribe at all the usual sources, Google and Apple and so on. And if you want to check out the notes that go along with this podcast, you can go to booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. And yeah, so... We'll be back again next Thursday morning. We'll have the toast on. We'll have the kettle boiling. We will have more books to discuss. And we're looking forward to having you here. So goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.